The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. Welcome to Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the roving pageant of American democracy, self-love, and personal enrichment that is a presidential campaign. I'm Mark Leibovich, Chief National Correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, and in our D.C. studio is Annie Lowry, Contributing Editor with New York Magazine. Say hi, Annie. Hi. And Alex Wagner is joining us by phone from, <laughs> it says here, undisclosed location, but I'm just going to out you. You're in the San Francisco Bay Area, aren't you, Alex? I am, where the trees are just the right height, Mark. Very nice. Very Romney-esque. First up, who else? Donald Trump, or should we call him Icarus? I'm sure like <laughs> he would probably like to be pre- referred to like a Greek god, but I don't know if Icarus is the one. Prometheus? Prometheus could be good. Yeah. Um, Annie, you got one. You went to Harvard. Yeah, no, he, he'd be like, I'm, I'm Zeus. I'm terrific. Zeus would be good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a Trump voice down, damn it. You know what? It's okay. It's, once your pneumonia clears up, <laughs> Annie, your Trump voice will soar. There are signs that this god might be falling back to earth with poll numbers that are slipping ever so slightly. Next, Speaker of the House hopeful Kevin McCarthy put his foot firmly into his mouth this week while discussing the Benghazi committee, or some might say he told the truth, which is even more problematic when you're on Capitol Hill. It might be the first good news that Hillary Clinton's campaign has had in months. We're going to have a Biden segment at the end as he inches along en route to maybe making a decision by the time you hear this or by the time you hear the next podcast. But let's get right down to business. It seems at the moment that so many commentators and political forecasters have predicted might happen, may now possibly could maybe be happening. Donald Trump's numbers seem to be dipping a little bit. This week, the Wall Street Journal NBC Marist poll showed that Trump's lead is diminishing in the two states that hold primaries and caucuses earliest, Iowa and New Hampshire. Trump had the support in the poll of 24% of support among Iowa Republicans in the new survey versus 29% support earlier in the month. Mr. Trump's 21% showing in New Hampshire was down from 28% in the prior survey, which was conducted in late August. Annie, how significant is this? I mean, the guy is still sort of holding to the lead. We're we're not really in clinging to the lead stage, but it seems like things might be uh, stabilizing a little bit in the field and Donald Trump might be losing a little bit of the momentum he had about a month ago. Yeah, I think that these things are zero sum. So I think you've started to see him lose a little bit of support that's flowing to other people. But, you know, only one person is going to win to make the obvious <laughs> the obvious point. So oh, you're good. <laughs> so, you know, he's still the front runner. If this is kind of a continued softening, which I think a lot of people in Washington are really hoping that it is, that could be one thing, but he has a lot of money to put into this. Annie, you just said continuing softening and Donald Trump. I know. Oh, this is, this is catastrophe. I'm sorry. I'm a three-year-old. Yeah. I want to hear what Alex has to say about the well, softening actually, of Donald Trump. Alex, uh, actually, let, let's move up. The flaccid campaign. Let's, oh, why don't, let's move really? our anatomical metaphors up a little bit, and I can ask you, Alex, is the Trump shine wearing off a little bit? Is that fake tan starting to fade. Well, I mean, it was until I read your masterful cover story in the New York Times Magazine, Mark, this past week. And that that just turned right (laughs) around for you again, did it? Well, you know, he, what I gleaned from that, I mean, I thought it was a a great piece, which goes without. Keep saying that. It's really pretty good. Can we just read it aloud? Yeah, we should probably do that. Let's just read it aloud. You know, the man is 
wholly self-contained, right? And as much as politics these days seems to be a response to poll numbers or the media, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, nobody puts baby in the corner. I mean, I, I just, I just feel like, I mean, again, I mean, how many times are we going to say this? It's a miraculous that the shine would only be wearing off in this month of October and not say, I don't know, three days after he announced he was running for president. I, I, I guess the reason I think he has some staying power is because staying power. You're welcome. Staying sorry, power, sorry. Trump. Staying power. Mm. The reason he is the horny goat weed 16 we hour energy <laughs> capsule of this race. Let's bring it right down to the horny goat weed. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm not convinced that Trump voters will flock to Senator Ted Cruz or even Carly Fiorina. Maybe Ben Carson poses the threat, but I kind of just think they're like an island unto themselves. And there are a hell of a lot of them. Completely agree. So you're saying that his his animal magnetism might firm things up again. <laughs> oh, interesting. We're into firmness. Yeah. Now. Uh, first of all, the notion of Trump voters might be completely oxymoronic. We don't know if these people vote. We don't know. I mean, we know they're real because they answer polls and they show up at his rallies. But are they answering polls and showing up at his rallies because he's a celebrity, he's Donald Trump, he's funny, or are they actually going to be moved to go out to the polls? Right. He has not spent a cent of his many, many, many millions, billions of dollars. He has not spent a cent on advertising. Uh, a lot of the other candidates are starting to do that. And that could actually put a floor under his um, whatever slide he has now, because he could just throw some ads up on the air in some of these early states, and lo and behold, he is uh, stabilized. So I think there are a lot of variables here, and in a way, Donald Trump is like a running variable. But, did, but Mark, you had a first-hand front-row seat to the Trump campaign. As it were. As it were. <laughs> and I remember in the piece specifically, you know, one of, one. I think it's communications officers, a former, former Ralph Lauren model, model yes. which is not to discriminate against models who sometimes <laughs> make the best campaign operatives. Absolutely. Is that at all a concern? Is mobilization and turnout something they even talk about? Like, just what exactly happens in the campaign <laughs> when they think about winning, other than great right. things are going to happen for America? Here, here are three things that you almost always, or you typically will hear a candidate talk about that you never hear from Donald Trump. One, organization. Two, fundraising, for obvious reasons. Three, issues. Donald Trump talks about the sizes of his crowds. I say crowds. <laughs> Uh, he talks about the poll numbers, his preeminence, his supremacy, his staying power in the polls. He talks about the big ratings. I mean, it's all about hugeness and bigness. <laughs> there is really not a lot of substance behind this. And and again, no one seems to be punishing him for this. And no one seems to be punishing him for not being humble. And, not, and no one's punishing him for not you know, being gentlemanly, which has been the sort of norm in politics. Wait, so, so here's my question, Mark. Is It seems to me that a lot of this campaign apparatus, you know, this ground operation in Ohio and in New Hampshire, I mean, you, you can buy and pay for that stuff, right? Like, if they get to the point that they're right. actually thinking about voters voters going to the polls, like, you, you can, you know, you can set this up. Like, at what point does the fact that he doesn't have any sort of ground operation hurt him? Uh, that is actually a great point. I mean, first of all, he did actually pay actors and actresses to show up at his his announcement rally to just to inflate the numbers. So the, he can do that. 
But um, you're Wink right, is though. It's so amazing. Wait, can we just say that's so amazing? Isn't that like, awesome? You talk about a ground operation. This dude had like paid actors. I just, I'm almost speechless. It is so beautiful in its ludicrousness. But see, that, that story came out the day after it happened and no one cared. Nobody I cared. mean, everyone Nobody laughed cared. and we snickered. And it just, he just kept going. But can you imagine I mean, the, if Romney had done that? <laughs> oh my god you know maybe he should have just tried it i don't know i mean there was like this was actually an outtake from the story i didn't get it in but but at one point i said to trump so i remember after 2012 republicans lost and there was this big post-mortem and they said we have to um you know reach out to hispanics we have to reach out to women uh, so you're 0 for 2 there and republicans also have to like stop nominating these plutocrats these rich guys he took great exception to that not because he thought i was calling him a plutocrat but because he said mitt romney is not rich i am rich i own stores that are worth more than mitt romney which i thought was just an incredibly counterintuitive that is and beautiful amazing moment. mitt romney has a car elevator that's, that's for his... And that is the metric of success. Yes, I think so. I think his... if you have a car elevator, you are rich. Um, but, no, maybe. no, I, I agree with you. It's a good indicator. Yeah. I never felt rich until I had To that life. end, though, to Annie's point, like, why can't this dude just hire some more people? I mean, he is a businessman. And part of being a successful executive is understanding sort of the industry, right? He knows right. at some point, if he's serious about this, he's going to have to really hire some sort of infrastructure. And yet he hasn't done that. So we can, can we take his reluctance to do that as a signal of the fact that he's not really serious about this in the end? I, I would say, look, he has at every step of the way said that the people who normally run campaigns, who do politics, who forge the, the conventional wisdom are idiots. OK, he actually he actually calls them out on the stump. And. You know, his philosophy is, I'm just doing it differently. I'm doing it because this is how but, I well, want to well, do well, it. Well, wait, and I'd love to know Annie's thoughts on this, too. Like, is, is Donald Trump weirdly idealistic about the political process? Like, he actually just thinks it's enough to be a charismatic, big presence on stage. I mean, and that'll carry him through to win because the grassroots will come out and support yeah, him. It would be amazing if, if Donald Trump ended up being the destruction of party politics just <laughs> by just basically by will. But it seems to me that, yes, at some point he would actually have to construct an, a real campaign, like an actual campaign, probably involving people who've done this before, which is like the normal, you know, and it, it just, do you get the sense, Mark, that like when he goes home and like brushes his teeth, he's like no longer the Donald or is the farce sort of like 24-7? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting question. Uh, we were actually, he after we, we were in his office and he was about to go over to do Jimmy Fallon's show and he said, hey, I'm about to go up to change. Why don't you come with me? You can see the apartment. So we, I'm like, okay. So we go up and we're on this three-story, four-story penthouse you know, apartment that he lives in on the top of Trump Tower. A quadruplex. It was big. But you walk in and the floor that the elevator opens to is, it's like a museum. It's like there's not a human being that's lived. It doesn't look like a human being lives there. Right. Are there statues of Donald? Well, no, but there are statues. There are paintings. If I were actually smarter, I'd know who the paintings are by. They're like really, you know, nice, expensive. They're not pictures of Donald Trump. No, but there are sculptures. There's like a big fountain. Um, it was inactive at the time. But I said to him, so like, where do you like take off all your clothes and get into your boxer shorts and just like wow. watch TV? And he just said, well, there, there's a big upstairs area. So he didn't show me that big upstairs oh. area. I guess I didn't write. But then later, actually, I think this was at another during another conversation. I said, so like, are you ever off? Are you ever like not the Donald? And he said, yeah, sometimes. I said, well, what does it look like? And he said, 
probably a lot like like this. I mean, like I said in the story, he just does not have an inner life at all. Right. I mean, this is. Yeah. If you if you think that like right, Barack Obama is the first postmodern president, and Donald Trump would be the first like post post postmodern president. Totally. It would be very totally. fitting for us English majors. Yeah, as an English major, I can agree with that, I think. Um, listeners, what do you think of Trump's allegedly diminishing lead? Tweet us with your thoughts at Pod for America. That's at the at sign, Pod for America, all one word. We'll certainly read it because we read it aloud to our families every night, and we might even read it on the air next week. Next, in other practically unimaginable news, Hillary Clinton's campaign might have finally, for the first time in how long, received some good news this week. Her name and the word Benghazi were in the same sentence and in a fresh, new, even welcome way. This good news comes thanks to the House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a would-be Speaker of the House. Let me read to you what he said on Fox News a few nights ago. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right, he said to Sean Hannity. But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. And what are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping. Why? Because she's untrustable. Not untrustworthy, but untrustable. Cue English majors. But no one would have known any of that had happened. And McCarthy later tried to backpedal, saying it was never his intention to ever imply that this committee was political in any way. No, of course not, because we all know it is not. I should say that the no, of course not, was my own little snarky quip. And the because we all know it is not was actually Kevin McCarthy speaking to Sean Hannity. Alex, the Clinton campaign wasted no time whatsoever and produced an ad airing across the country declaring that the Republicans finally admitted they were out to get her. Is this a fair portrayal of the situation? Were they smart to do this? What, what do you make of that? Yes! I mean, my God, opportunity you can if you're the Hillary Clinton campaign to push back on some of the Republican fear mongering. But my I mean, I guess I go back to and this is me putting on my cynic hat, which, as you know, Mark, I don't wear very often. But I guess like it's just, you know, it confirms each side's suspicions. Republicans who are denying that this is at all politically motivated will continue beating that drum. And those who are legitimately interested in the findings of the House Select Committee on Benghazi will continue to be interested in the the findings of that committee. And everybody else in the world who understands that the committee is basically a partisan investigation will continue to largely dismiss the actions and conclusions of the House Select Committee on Benghazi. I just don't know... That at this point, I mean, this goes back to: Are there any swing voters at this point? Well, Andy, what? Do you, but now, do you think actually it might not have changed any voter minds, but it actually could change a lot of important minds among House Republicans who are about to vote for their next speaker, which could put Kevin McCarthy, who was the front runner as of a few days ago, in some trouble? I mean, do you think that? Forget the committee for a second. Do you actually think that this? gaffe by Kevin McCarthy could change the dynamics of that race. So, yeah, it seems like this was an actually consequential gaffe. And I think, you know, and Alex kind of alludes to this point, but this is kind of a gift to Hillary Clinton and that now she has really easy shorthand for when she says that these things are, are politicized. This is nothing more than a political attack. You know, she just gets to point to Kevin McCarthy. And I think there's something to the idea that if he were Speaker of the House, that it would just set up too strong of a rivalry there. Whether this is actually going to mean that somebody else gets into the Speaker's I'm not sure. But certainly I think that a week ago, McCarthy seemed like a lock and now he doesn't. I mean, certainly it seems like Kevin McCarthy is taking on water. Yep. Uh, Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show asked Hillary Clinton, I think uh, early this week, whether she believes the committee should be disbanded after 
McCarthy's comments. Clinton, returning to her old mealy-mouthed, non-responsive self, said it's ultimately up to Congress to determine whether to continue. Personally, I wish she had answered honestly and said something like, no, of course it should be disbanded. But in all seriousness, do you think that, do either of you think that 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 would actually happen or would it take a incredible wash of self-consciousness? Well, Um, okay, let's be clear. The Republicans already have the monster they've been looking for for this presidential election race, and it's Hillary Clinton's email server. So Benghazi has diminished greatly in terms of importance as a cudgel with which they can beat Hillary Clinton. Do you beat people with cudgels? You know, you you do do seem to metaphorically. It is the the go-to metaphor for a cudgel. And I always assumed that a cudgel was something you kind of wedge, like kind of like a melon wedge kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like it. It does, but it's more like something you beat. It's like more like a bat kind of thing. English majors, help. What is a cudgel? Well, I'm just saying, listen, they, they already have their their straw man, so they don't need it. It will be an easier loss for them if, in fact, it is a loss. I, I guess I have always been skeptical that Kevin McCarthy had the rousing support of the more conservative members of the, of the party because he's, you know, a pro-business guy from California, but not a, a sort of fire and brimstone social conservative ready to shut down the government. I mean, this guy is just nicer than Boehner and apparently has a worse vocabulary. (laughs) So, like, apparently there was no one else. But now that Jason Chaffetz has thrown his hat into the ring, maybe that means it's doomsday for McCarthy. At the end of the day, Benghazi goes away because of a private server in, in Chappaqua. Right. Well, you know, actually, by the way, think of all the damage a cudgel could do to a straw man. You ever thought of that? Well, you never see them in the same room at the same time, do you? No, you don't. Let's move on to our third segment. We've decided that we would talk about Joe Biden and his, what might be the final days of his deliberations as he decides whether or not to seek the presidency for the third time. Now, an interesting nugget came to everyone's attention early this week when we learned that it was, in fact, Joseph Biden, our vice president, who told Maureen Dowd over the summer that it was Bo Biden, his son who who died of brain cancer, who on his deathbed essentially said to his father, I would really like you to run for president. You know, this is not the birthright of the Clintons. This should not revert to the Clintons. We need Biden values in the White House. How did you, Alex, receive that news that, in fact, Joe Biden himself told this to Maureen Dowd? Did that strike you as a bit funny or quintessential Biden or strategically smart? I mean, how did that sit with you? Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. exists yeah, Jr. exists in our mind as this kind of Wilford Brimley-ish, hmm. grandfatherly, good-natured, apolitical being, despite the fact that he is, of course, incredibly political, had a right. long and storied career in the Senate, and knows how to work a room. And and by work a room, I don't mean like in terms of glad handing, but he, he, he knows how to, he knows the art of the deal, if you will. That said, I have a hard time that this seeding of this, this story to Maureen Dowd was as crass, that it is as calculated as everybody wants it to believe in large part, because he doesn't know what he's going to do. I mean, he's going to make a decision at some point, but why would you put this all in motion in this sort of very calculated manner if you didn't know what you wanted the outcome to be, you know? Look, here are two things we know absolutely about Joe Biden. One, he is in intense grieving mode and probably will be forever over the loss of his son. That's understandable to anyone. And two, the guy wants to be president. He's wanted to be president for many, many, many decades now. And 
the two are going to not just collide, but they're going to just sort of blend. And it's not a clean black and white operation in which you, like, like you just said, Alex, you don't just sit down and calculate, okay, this happened, and now I'm going to use this to make this happen. It's, it's just not a linear procedure. I mean, any... Do you think, are we being too cynical here? Should we cut the guy a break? Or- no, I mean, I'm with Alex, right? Yeah. I don't think that this was as cynical as like, you know, sort of this like House of Cards style picking up the phone and giving a calculated leak to. I totally agree that this was like an emotional thing. And of course, at some point, like the font of all of these leaks is usually the person whom the leak is about. And also, I mean, it, it is this kind of interesting. There's a secondary question, too. And I don't know if you guys read this differently, but I would just love to know who leaked this about Biden, um, because the way that it was presented and the sort of manner that it was described, I'd be very interested to know who did that. Hmm. I'm going to guess that this was leaked by probably someone who's a little bit exasperated on Biden's staff. I mean, who yeah. could that? Oh, really? I, I was thinking uh, there's new reporting by Gabe Sherman in New York Magazine, a publication we're all familiar with, mm. and who one of us works for. Wow. God, if it comes uh, out that this is, is the Clintons, that that well, the, the Clintons are gearing oh. up to. Uh, they're doing some Mapo research on Biden. Right. They have David Brock at work gathering, you know, a pile of data that would not be good for Joe Biden were he to run if it were released. Right. I'm just trying to connect dots where maybe I shouldn't, but I just wonder if this doesn't somehow behoove Hillary Clinton to have Joe Biden get a day of sort of bad press. There's definitely some behooving there. I think, <laughs> no, you're right. I hadn't even thought of that. I mean, I guess it's unclear how a Clinton person would know, but I mean, th- these worlds are small enough and there's enough overlap that that, that would become known. I mean, two actually... Before we move on, I mean, there are two little historical pieces here that I I would encourage our readers to go search for. One is a link to a 1974 profile of Joe Biden in Washingtonian magazine. Anyone read that or am I the only Oh my god, it's so oh good. Oh my god. I mean, it's Whew. read it immediately. It is just 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 go read it. So oh it is my it is god. Biden when he is grieving the loss of his wife and daughter, yes. right? But is also sort of thinking about the next Mrs. Biden. It is just an extraordinary piece. I mean, and he comes off kind of lecherously. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? And by kind of, I mean very. Yeah. I mean, he was like all libido. Oh, goodness. I mean, it was it was Joe Biden. That's the high end, what we were talking about with go- Horny Goatweed and Donald Trump. Yeah. I actually was thinking as we were talking about Trump's infrastructure, how nobody has, everyone questions the seriousness of Biden's potential bid because there's like, does he have the money? Does he have the support? Does he have the network? Nobody questions it when it's Donald Trump. Certainly the money isn't an issue for Trump. But, you know, neither one. They basically have the same amount of campaign infrastructure at this point, which is to say none at all. Right. And yet that seems to be a liability for Biden in a way that it is not at all for Trump. And Trump happens to be the front runner in the Republican nomination. That's true. Process, right? That is actually yeah, And I feel like that's point. just because like the entire political press is looking at the Trump campaign and just sort of suspending disbelief or or can't suspend disbelief right. more to the point. Right. Like it doesn't matter that he doesn't have a campaign infrastructure because at some point it's got to fall apart. Right. 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 Me. Right. Even I mean, I'm saying that realizing that I'm supposed to say, well, maybe but truth be no, told, but I, I think it's I think it's totally imagine. interesting, right? People ask the obvious question about the Biden candidacy, but they don't ask it about Trump because it seems so surreal to begin with. I just think that like everyone in the political press is just like completely snobby, and they think you know, oh, Donald's doing it wrong. He doesn't do this and that. Look, yeah, Donald, I think that that's right. To too. his credit, is like has proven everyone wrong over and over and over again. I think he deserves. You know, at least a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. And look, until he actually loses the lead, 
I mean, I think that we have to sort of look at him for the last three months, at least, as being the master strategist of this race, because whatever he's doing is working. Okay, everyone, we have come to the part of the show, which, and I know I can hear all of our listeners just ruffling and with anticipation, we have come to the part of the show that we call If I Were in Charge, where we go along the virtual table and we talk about how we would rule the world if we were, in fact, the benign dictators that we like to think we are. I will go first. Good. That's very benign dictatorial. Well, no, I thought you guys needed to think of yours. We do. We need time. (laughs) If I were in charge, I would ban these terrible mass shootings so ridiculously commonplace in our culture, but I would also ban the term thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers have been around forever, obviously, but in the age of Twitter, we have seen an incredible proliferation of people just throwing out thoughts and prayers uh, in a very pat and sort of thrown off way. And I think it diminishes and cheapens the very seriousness of the tragedies. And it also, you know, it's like one of those light switches that people like flip on and off, even though it doesn't do anything. They just sort of walk by and they flip it anyway. Maybe it makes them feel better. doesn't do anything. But anyway, I would ban thoughts and prayers. Not the thoughts and not the prayers themselves, but the expression, the cliche, thoughts and prayers. So you would have everybody say, I hold you in my heart and in my head. Just something else. Just let's, let's, <laughs> just let's settle on something else. Some other cliche. Annie, to you. If I were in charge, I would bring the Pope back to Washington, D.C. Oh, very good. To clear everybody out so there's no traffic anywhere. And like all of the trains are empty and just there's just activity comes to a halt in DC so I can wander around and bike around. It was wonderful. Okay. It's a little so Pope Francis, we thank you. Yeah. Annie thanks you. Mm-hmm. Pope Miss Paco. Ya. Love welcome you. Mean back. It. Mm-hmm. Alex. <laughs> not not in our thoughts and prayers. Guess what? You're in charge, uh, Alex. I would do something and I say this somewhat disingenuously, but mostly genu- genu- genuinely yeah. um, to paraphrase Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy. Mostly truth truthably. I would have basically the equivalent of a highway sign where it's like minimum speed, maximum speed for the presidential race. And I would do it in terms of minimum number of candidates, maximum number of candidates. So for the Democratic race, I'd say minimum number of candidates, five. Hmm. Maximum number of candidates for the Republican side, seven. And we'd go from there because someone needs to grab a hold of this process by the proverbial cojones. Alex. We don't live in Alex Wagner's America yet, but when we do, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Mark. That's all for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and for help this week from Zach Dinerstein. Thanks also to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter. Once again, Pod for America, P-O-D-F-O-R America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And please tell your friends about us, too. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. For the great Alex Wagner, for the really great Annie Lowry, I'm mediocre Mark Leibovich in New York. We will talk to you next time, and thank you so much for listening.